welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Gage Crowder on June 12th, Lord's Day Service. Let me pray and we will jump in. Father, we give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks for all the good gifts that you've given us. Thank you for the anonymous gifts you've given us through people we don't even know. Tires to put on our cars to get us here. Uh, Cars themselves and uh, carriers to carry babies in for the people who put us together and who made this podium and these chairs and this building for us. We give you thanks for all your gifts through Christ our Savior. Help us to know that morning by morning you destroy the works of the wicked in the land, cutting off the evildoers by these good gifts. Help us to use them for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right. So as you can, uh, as you've probably seen from the emails, we're going to talk this morning about a biblical theology of kingdom optimism. Um, So last week, Jeremy did a great job just kind of introducing us to principal structures, and various eschatological views, what exactly they teach, what they say, what they don't say, uh, the major systems, and undoubtedly, what links together all eschatological systems, uh, it's their chronology and their geography. Uh, So the eschatological lay of the land is subdivided into time zones, we could say. Uh, This is just a recap of for last week. So consider that dispensationalism, premillennialism, and amillennialism, the borders of each of these eschatologies are drawn first by their chronology of the millennial or thousand-year reign of Christ. Dispensationalism and premillennialism are dependent on specific and supposedly literal time markers in scripture. After the always imminent rapture, there will be a seven years of tribulation on earth for those that are left behind. And then, the millennia, uh, and then the millennial reign of Christ on earth in Jerusalem, it will be 1,000 years long, period. And after that, the judgment. Amillennialism takes the spiritual high road, as it were, in its timeline. The 1,000 years of Revelation 20 are figural, symbolic of the long journey toward the new Jerusalem. Christ will return whenever he returns. And even our own beloved postmillennialism is chronologically conditioned. Christ, we will say, will return after, on earth, that is post the millennial success of the gospel. So like amillennialism, we share a symbolic reading of the thousand-year period in Revelation 20 and a rather agnostic outlook about when exactly this return will take place, though it will certainly take place. So each eschatological system is chronologically distinct and geographically distinct. Dispensationalism and premillennialism see the kingdom of God as a future earthly reality. Jesus comes back to physically reign on this terrestrial ball for 1,000 years before scrapping it to make a new and eternally perfect one. Amillennialism sees the kingdom of God as a present heavenly reality with earthly implications. Jesus is currently reigning, but the reality of that reign on earth is already in the church, not yet in the world. And again, postmillennialism sees the kingdom of God as a both and, a heavenly and earthly reality there that is currently consummate in heaven and unfolding presently on earth 
which will one day be accomplished and consummated on earth. So what we want to talk about this morning um, is just that. Uh, here's our guiding question. I'll give you two guiding questions for us. When we look through the Bible, when we do a biblical theological survey of the uh, unified story of man's redemption from Genesis to Revelation, are we taught to look at the growth of the kingdom of God on earth optimistically or pessimistically? Or restated, does the whole counsel of God present an eschatology of overwhelming defeat with a final victory or progressive victory with occasional setbacks? I hope to show you this morning that it is the latter of the two, that when scripture speaks about the kingdom of God on earth, it does so in such a way as to arouse our confidence in the persistent and progressive growth of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So two qualifications though before we begin. Um, one clarification and one qualification actually. Uh, first the clarification, when I say optimism, I don't mean, you know, Jesus has it covered, let's eat, drink, and be merry, kind of foolhardiness. And by optimism, I don't mean uh, grin and bear it, you know, fake smile and wave, it, everything's going to be okay. By kingdom optimism, we are talking about uh, the tincture, the way we speak about the end of the world. Considered from this angle, there are really only two eschatological systems, pessimillennialism and optimillennialism. There are those eschatologies that speak about the coming of the kingdom of God with pessimism. These would typically be dispensationalism, historic premillennialism, and most strands of amillennialism. The kingdom will come, they say, not with a bang, but with a whimper. When they talk about the end of the world, there's a, there's a belief in a future kingdom, but the tincture is typically gloomy about the present state of affairs or any hope of gospel progress. Everything is going to get worse and worse until Jesus steps in at the last moment to save the day. Their present view of the world is one of overwhelming defeat and final victory. But then there's that eschatology, which we call postmillennialism, that looks at the coming of the kingdom of God on earth with iron confidence in its progressive and ultimate victory. Regardless of the present state of affairs, which could, could be and has been much worse, the kingdom of God is among us and it is growing because of and in spite of us. So, and then the qualification here, keep in mind that this is biblical theology. So I've kind of designed this. I know there were a lot of questions last week that we didn't get to. Um, I think when we ended, there were many, many hands still up. So um, I'm going to run through this really quick and just kind of give you the lay of the land from Scripture and how it presents the kingdom of God growing. Uh, and then we want to spend a lot of time just discussing. I think these sort of topics are, are better done that way anyway. Um, and that's not to say that I'm sage on the stage up here. I don't have all the questions. I don't have all the answers. I do have all the questions. <laughs> I don't have all the answers. Um, but, you know, maybe we can, uh, Jeremy, Jason, a few other guys, we can jump in and, you know, figure some stuff out if you have very specific questions. So let's get going. Um, I want to talk briskly and walk briskly from Genesis to Revelation, looking at the three P's of kingdom optimism. And you'll have to forgive me. I'm a I'm both a poet and a recovering fundamentalist, so asking me not to alliterate something is like asking a fish not to use its gills. Uh, so the purpose of man, the plan of redemption, and the promise of God. All right, that's what we're going to see, Genesis to Revelation. So let's begin. First, kingdom optimism is rooted in the purpose of mankind. Notice kindly what I did not say there. 
I did not say that kingdom optimism is rooted in man himself. Man after Adam is desperately wicked, without hope in the world apart from God's sovereign mercy. However, this is not the, to uh, the totality of the story. We begin in Genesis 1, in verse 26 specifically, that says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, uh, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The purpose of mankind from the beginning of creation was to be an imager of God. Please notice that. There is much confusion today in the church over the idea of the image of God. Most muse over the idea as if it were some sort of ghostly structure that were placed in man. Capabilities or capacities for self-reflection, will, emotion, etc. But we do not have the image of God. We are the image of God. While it may be partly true that this includes certain of our sentient capacities, the context in Genesis as a whole and the wording of this particular passage is key to suggest to us that to be in God's Im image is a function rather than a structure of humanity. It is a statement of our vocation rather than our value. It is primarily an orientation toward a task rather than an endowment with certain abilities. To be in God's image is to image the actions of God in taking dominion over the world as God had done over the whole of creation in the first six days. Adam and Eve in God's image were to follow suit, copying God's dominion, taking over the earth and animals, multiplying themselves, turning the welter of creation into a well-ordered kingdom. This was supposed to happen over time, ever so slowly. As Adam guarded the garden and served the ground as a priest king, which we already discussed in former biblical theology studies, expanding the borders of the kingdom of God, one physical and spiritual seed at a time. Of course, we know, however, that this good purpose of man to image God and taking dominion was soon frustrated by sin. In Genesis chapter 3, rather than slowly maturing into godliness and glory, Satan offers Adam and Eve the easy way out. Eat the apple. Be like God with complete glory, Satan, uh, with complete glory and dominion right now. Don't wait for the wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil that will come to you in time. Take it at this moment. This was, was Adam's primary temptation. Take the kingdom and its benefits by force immediately. Adam acquiesced to the serpent's subtle prompts, and the image of God is distorted by sin. The purpose of man to take dominion, to transform the world into God's temple kingdom of priests kings, has now been transformed into a self-fulfilling, self-gratifying pursuit of power over the world. The image of God and man, the impulse to take dominion, though, is not eradicated by the fall. Cain, in God's image, was just as bound to fulfill his God-given vocation to take dominion as Adam was. The image of God and man is not destroyed. Further proof of this would be that when Noah is given the right of capital punishment in Genesis 9, uh, which is explicitly based on the image of God, uh, killing one another. You do not kill an image of God, and if you do, you yourself are killed. The image of God it perpetuates. It's not destroyed from the fall. So a kingdom will come on earth through man because that is what man is designed to do by his nature. As the image of God, the creator and king, men are as his image designed to be creators and kings. The only question after Genesis 3 
is now simply which kingdom will win out, the kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? Whose kingdom will overtake the other? Admittedly, throughout Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament, the situation looks fairly bleak. The corrupt image of God and man seems to usually win out. The kingdom of man seems to always trample the kingdom of God. Cain's wicked descendants are the firsts to start uh, any sort of civilization with music, culture, infrastructure. Consider Genesis 4, 17 to 22. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and to Erad the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael the father of Methushael, and Methushael the father of Lamech. Lamech took two wives, the name of the one Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have cattle. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the first of those to play the lyre and pipe. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments, bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. So, first civilization, first societies founded by the descendants of Cain. The kingdom of man gets the first shot. And of course, you'll remember that Lamech, uh, one of Cain's descendants, goes on to kill a man. Remember that passage uh, in Genesis 4 there, like his father Cain. From Lamech on, every great kingdom of man is established by murder. Romulus murders Remus to found Rome. Enkidu murders the father Apsu to found the Babylonian a kingdom in the Enuma Elish. Take your pick. Any sort of mythology uh, from world literature always begins with murder because that's how Cain began civilization. In fact, it gets so bad that the descendants of Seth, the supposedly godly line, like their father Adam, become attracted to the success of the murderous kingdoms of man and start to intermarry with their daughters. Genesis 6, 1-2. When men began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, that is the descendants of Seth, we can talk about that if you want, saw that the daughters of men were fair and they took to wife such of them as they chose. All the earth was corrupt and violent, save Noah. Yet even after God starts over with Noah in the flood and sets a limit on how far the unrighteous images of God will be able to flourish over the earth by the death penalty, the ruined images of God start again asserting their dominance over the earth. Ham slithers like a serpent to steal his father's authority in his tent, and his descendants found the arch kingdom of man, that wicked city Babylon with its tower. Later, Abraham is constantly on the run, having to deceive his way out from under the wicked dynasties of Egypt, Shinar, and others. Jacob is always on the lamb, fleeing from murderous, his murderous brother Esau. Joseph is sold into slavery. Still further, Israel under bondage in Egypt. Once liberated, uh, they spend seven years conquering Canaan, only to be internally conquered by the kingdoms of man that they allowed to remain in their land against God's commands to completely devote it all to destruction. Even once Israel as a nation comes into its own under David and Solomon, establishing a monarchy that is attractive to the likes of Sheba, Tyre, Egypt, even when it looks like the kingdom of God in the Old Testament is flourishing as those images begin to exercise godly dominion, multiplying the glory of Yahweh to the ends of the earth from the throne in Jerusalem, immediately after that we read 1 Kings 11 chapter, uh, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, the daughters of Pharaoh, the Moabite, the Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from other nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not 
enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Those sons of Seth are still bound by their love to the beautiful forbidden fruit of the daughters of Cain because they can provide the immediate gratification. The kingdom of God once again becomes subject to the kingdoms of man. The corrupt image, excuse me, the corrupt image of God, Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Rome, these beastly distortions of God's image, imaging creation that Daniel sees in dominance over the kingdom of God, they hold Israel in her own self-imposed prison for centuries. Even when Cyrus decrees that Israel is allowed to return from captivity under Ezra, and Darius decrees that Nehemiah may rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah is heard crying out on the final pages of the Old Testament, we are still slaves, remember me, oh my God. And it ends. So much for optimism, right? Not quite. For we must also note that throughout the Old Testament, the kingdom of God does grow through Israel, even if only faintly by hints and guesses. Israel begins as one man, Abraham, and grows into a mighty nation. The principle of kingdom progression is present in the Old Testament, even if the propagation of that kingdom was provincial, local, small. That is, of course, until we reach the New Testament. And here we come to our second P, the plan of redemption. Although the purpose of man was to take dominion, and this was corrupted by sin, we see that the redemption of man removes sin and reestablishes the primacy of the kingdom of God. This is evidence in the covenants, the prophets, and the parables of Jesus. First, the covenants. Uh, quickly, in spite, of Cain's, uh, excuse, in spite of Cain's murder, Ham's rebellion, and all of Israel's other failures, God graciously makes covenants with Noah, Abraham, and David to set things right to ensure that the kingdom fruitfully multiplies under the good rule of God. He gives promises that Israel will have a new heart, a new king, and a renewed mission to the world. Second, consider the prophets. Daniel, in the midst of Israel's captivity under the beastly kingdom of man, saw a vision in chapters 2 and 7 of his book, in which one like the Son of Man would come to the earth, make an end of sin, and restore dominion to his holy ones. Uh, read from Daniel chapter 7 quickly. I saw in the night visions, quote, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was present before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall, shall serve and obey them. Further, the prophets testify, as in Ezekiel's vision in chapter 36, quote, On that day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being the desolation that uh, it was once in the sight of all who passed by, and they shall say, This land was once desolate, and it has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now inhabited and fortified. The nations that are left around about you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. We usually end right there with the prophecy. 
thinking our nice, pious thoughts about our individual salvation from this God-forsaken world, and ignore what follows immediately after this promise of redemption in Ezekiel's 37 to 30, in Ezekiel chapters 37 to 39. Uh, in this vision, the redeemed images of God, the new Israel, conquer over the wicked kingdoms of man, typified by Gog, king of Magog. Redemption and dominion for Ezekiel are inseparable as they are for the rest of the prophets. Consider Isaiah's vision. We again think of our nice pious thoughts on Good Friday about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and rightly so. However, we fail to see that after this servant suffers, he also raises as Israel's king, to whom the Lord says in Isaiah 63, for the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid to waste. The suffering servant becomes the world-conquering king at the end of Isaiah. Finally, the minor prophets call the shadowy figure we've been waiting on, David. And not to our surprise, when we open the New Testament, the first words that we read in Matthew are these. This is the genealogy of the book of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Here we meet a new Adam, the new and eternal image of God, Jesus Christ. As God's true image, as Paul calls him in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, Jesus comes to resist the devil's advances in the wilderness, refusing to fall prey to Adam's temptation. Satan wants Jesus to bring the kingdom immediately in a flash of glory, with all the kingdoms of the world bowing uh, to Jesus, who is born by angels from the pinnacle of the temple. But Jesus knows that suffering must come first, suffering that will confirm Jesus himself as the perfect image of God, and will begin to renew the sinful creation uh, in God's renewed image. In this way, Jesus goes about pronouncing the kingdom of God, the dominion of the children of God, which is coming slowly but surely. So let's consider third here, in our plan of redemption, Jesus' parables. Go over to Matthew 13. Have you turned there? Matthew 13. And by the way, if you have any questions about these specific passages, more than happy to answer um, biblical theology. We're looking at big picture, so it's not very detailed. Exegesis. Uh, in Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parables of the kingdom. Uh, that's essentially the whole point of this chapter. Um, but here's where we begin to test our mettle as uh, good Presbyterian Christians. Uh, does the order of these parables matter? Absolutely. Right, this is God's inspired word. It's not an accident the way that they're set up. Well, the way that they're set up, take a look at this. First thing you get is parable of the sower. Right, The sower goes out and scatters some seeds. Uh, three of them we know that fall along the path, the rocks, um, and the other one. Uh, eventually, those seeds get choked out. Right, The cares of the world, the persecutions, deceits, etc., etc. Only one of the seeds begins to reproduce. Okay, So, doesn't look so great. That's uh, uh, three out of the four seeds that are scattered are only going to produce fruit. Very, very small amount. Second, we get the parable of the weeds starting in verse 24 after the explanation of the sower, uh, where Jesus says, yes, the, the kingdom is going to grow through, these good seed, through this good seed, but also at the same time, the weeds are going to grow. Okay? But notice what parables come next. Leaven and the parable of of, uh, excuse me, where, is, where am I at here? Yeah, the parable of the leaven and the parable of the mustard seed. Even though at the beginning of the kingdom, only 
one out of the four seeds begins to produce fruit. Even though the weeds are going to grow up along with the seeds, eventually the kingdom of God is going to be like a mustard seed that grows into a giant tree. Eventually the kingdom is going to be like leaven, which once it sits for a while, begins to rise. Okay? So that's the principle that Jesus sets up in these parables, small to large. The kingdom begins very, very small with a mustard seed, the smallest seed on the earth, Jesus says, and grows okay, over the weeds. So thus, uh, when Peter suggests to Jesus uh, some nonsense about him not having to suffer death in Jerusalem, uh, which is not necessary to bring the kingdom, he is rebuked in the strongest possible terms, get behind me, Satan. It is satanic to suggest that the kingdom could come in a flash of glory without first suffering, without going through the slow and laborious process of growth and cultivation. Jesus, therefore, ultimately obeys his father on the tree where Adam disobeyed at the tree. In doing so, he reestablishes the dominion of the kingdom of God. So Jesus, as the bridegroom, instructs his bride in Matthew 28 to be fruitful and multiply over the earth, subdue it as a recapitulation of the dominion mandate given to Adam um, Larson talked about this beautifully a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure you remember. Only this time, the tincture and tone of this command is different. It's a confident commission rather than a hopeful command. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has renewed the image of God for man. And therefore, as Daniel's son of man, Isaiah's suffering servant, and David's son and Lord of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, he has authority over heaven and earth to give his servants the triumphant victory, growing the kingdom like a mustard seed and like leaven. Uh, just consider how Acts works uh, as one large example, which uh, Pastor Chris Wiley is going to talk to us about next week, I believe. Um, we start with 12 apostles, okay? And those 12 apostles eventually, we're told in Acts 17, turn the world upside down. The kingdom smarts, starts small and then grows. That's always the pattern throughout Scripture. Uh, skipping down here, let's go to the big and scary questions. If it is the case... Um, that Colossians 3, Romans 5, death once spread, the kingdoms of men once spread death and murder everywhere, and now the kingdom of God is spreading life and growth and beauty. Why is it taking so long? Why does it always seem to be getting worse? Why do we still suffer? And in answer to these questions, we come to our last P, namely, Kingdom optimism is rooted in the promise of God. Though we could get into much discussion about the historical realities of the current growth of Christianity in Africa, Asia, and Middle East, despite the decline of Christianity in the West, our vision is much too parochial for such talk. We can only see the incredibly high gas prices, uh, the horrific murders of abortion, the rainbow flags constantly whipping around us. But we must note that according to the biblical pattern, the kingdom never comes immediately or without suffering. Adam did have work to do before the fall. The only difference is that now we must do the same work while also beating back the thorns and thistles born by the cursed earth. Eve was going to give birth before the fall. The only difference is that now women must do so with thorny physical pain and the spiritual pain of knowing that her seed is born naturally inclined to follow the cursed serpent. However, by faith... The faith of Jesus and faith in Jesus, both of those problems, both of those, those curses are being reversed, again, slowly and surely. This is not unusual. In fact, it's normal. Think of Abram. 
carrying around the promise of God for decades without receiving what he was promised in this life. Or think of the way that any other of the Old Testament saints, whom Hebrews 11 explicitly says of them, all died in faith without having received what they were promised. Of course, we are also a little different than they were. We have the king of the new kingdom. We are optimistic that, as Hebrews later says, even though we do not see everything currently subjected to Christ, we do see Christ crowned with glory and honor, knowing that this is where everything else is heading. He is currently, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, ruling until all things are put under his feet. And we could even turn to Revelation and note that in chapter 2, Jesus rebukes the seven churches for their various sins, which need purging, and each of them are promised that when they are further sanctified, they will, quote, conquer. They will take dominion over their respective locations. If we take those seven churches as symbolically representing the church as a whole, the implications here are enormous. We may not, may not see the church currently conquering in our context because we refuse to let go of certain aspects of the old man. To have our cracked Adamic image further painfully reset to its proper configuration like a broken bone. Perhaps confession and repentance are too painful for us here in the West, for you and me. And we know that those who refuse repentance have their influence removed, according to Jesus' promise. But also later in chapter 20 of Revelation, at the very end, after Jesus' current millennial reign, those who come to make war against the saints of the Lamb in the final battle with Gog and Magog, which, by the way, our reference from Ezekiel earlier, should make sense what John is referring to there now. Those words themselves should be a hint. Uh, before the full coming of the new heavens and earth, in Revelation 20, the wicked come from the four corners of the earth to make war implying that those who do not belong to the Lamb and his church are in the far reaches of the world, away from the city centers, needing to be rallied to advance toward the enormous kingdom of God that's grown over this millennium. So thus, in the end here, our ultimate optimism is not rooted in any plan or program or perception, but in the promises of God revealed in Scripture, in the eternal seed of the Abrahamic covenant, in the eternal kingdom of the Davidic covenant, in the eternal words of Jesus and in the eternal testimony of the apostles. We see the growth of the kingdom by faith, even if not yet by sight, which is the typical pattern throughout scripture as we've seen. Ultimately, our optimism about the growth of the kingdom is a matter of faith. Do we believe as we recite and sing from Psalm 2 that Jesus will receive all the kingdoms of the earth as he asked? Do we believe that we will suffer with him in order that we will reign with him? Do we believe that our, our being further conformed to the image of the Son, baptizing our children, teaching them in the faith, breaking bread with our neighbors will actually do what God says it will do. Do we believe that Christ will build his church and that the gates of hell will not overcome it? And a biblical theology of kingdom optimism suggests that we should be faithfully optimistic in our answer. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.